Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. And I'm in conversation today with Mark Nepo. Mark is an author, poet, and spiritual teacher with over 40 years of teaching experience. He has published 22 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Book of Awakening, and his most recent release from 2020, The Book of Soul. In his 30s, Mark was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma, a struggle which helped to form his philosophy of experiencing life fully while staying in relationship to an unknowable future. Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship and continues to offer readings 
lectures, and retreats. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. No, thank you. It's great to be here with you. I can't even think about when we were last together physically. I think it was like a million years ago, but it's <laughs> wonderful to have some time together. And where are you recording from today? Well, I'm at, at home in my study in Kalamazoo, Michigan. There is a Kalamazoo. I've been there. <laughs> I've been to Kalamazoo. <laughs> it's not easy to get to. <laughs> Actually, it's several flights, as I recall. Yeah, there's no way to fly from here directly to anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So um, just in case there isn't someone who's familiar with your uh, writing or teaching who's listening, um, I'd like to start with your stories and what brought you to the spiritual path. Well, you know, especially as I think about this, uh, you know, I just recently turned 70, which seemed remarkable because uh, when I met people my age when I was younger, I thought they were ancient. It doesn't seem so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, many, many years ago in my 30s, as you mentioned, you know, uh, it was my cancer journey. Um, you know, before my cancer journey, I was a very driven young artist. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, life turned me inside out and upside down. And I had never been through anything really, you know, life-threatening at that time, or even really, you know, that difficult, really. And, and I began a three-year journey, the heat of that journey, um, where I almost died. And I had a, a tumor in my skull bone that was pressing mm. in and out uh, it was the size of like a grapefruit. And, um, and so I was just thrown into this incredible journey and I was terrified of everything. And so, you know, my great apprenticeship into dealing with fear and pain, and I was blessed to, to come through that. And the first part of the journey was that that tumor in my skull bone over several months vanished and it wow. was it was a miracle and um and no one could explain it and i was kind of like thrown back into life like jonah spit out of the mouth of a whale <laughs> and and uh within months because you know that was so dramatic on my head but within about eight or nine months there was a very tiny sister tumor growing on a rib in my back which I didn't notice, no one noticed. And, um, and that grew. And then I went through a second journey of having that root that did not vanish. And I had to have it surgically removed. I had a rib and muscles removed from my back. And then um, I went through months of very aggressive chemo um, to try to ensure that you know, any vestiges that were left would, and the chemo almost killed me, um, mm -hmm. at which point I had to stop. And so, you know, one of the things that, several things there that, that led me to the spiritual path, um, you know, one was that miracle is a process and not an event. I needed to say yes and no and maybe and about face so many times that 
that was, you know, as Blake says in one of his aphorisms, you know, straight is the road to improvement, but crooked is the road to genius. Mm. Not genius as in brilliant, but mm-hmm. the original notion of the word of genius meaning attendant spirit. And and so there I was on the other side, um, and I would have to say that, you know, a couple of monumental things for me that changed everything is, you know, one was that I but raised Jewish. I feel I am Jewish by heritage, um, and but I, I became a student of all paths on the other side of this because I was blessed to have love and help and kindness from people from all traditions and walks of life. And I say traditions very loosely, including, you know, friends who were scientists and people who were atheists, every imaginable thing. And so on the other side, all those years ago, I was not and am still not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And I felt like I was being called to be a student of all paths Mm. and all my work, all my books, all my chances to be with folks and, and enter teaching spaces ever since has been centered on a belief in my heart that in a common center to all paths in the unique gifts of each and, and in the fact that nobody Nobody really knows anything. <laughs> we're all just, I agree with that. <laughs> hey, we're all just comparing notes. So, you know, anything that I share are just examples, not instructions. And, um, and, and uh, two other things that were very um, transforming for me is one was that, you know, I always believed in a kind of a heartfelt view of life and the world. But before my cancer journey, I was in my head about it. You know, I was kind of, I was, I was kind of like a young, I wasn't just a driven artist. I was driven to peace and it obviously didn't work very well. And and not through any wisdom on my part, but being, you know, thrown upside down and inside out. um, I woke on the other side and my, and I, my head has always served my heart since. It was like everything that was in my head kind of melted like snow into the ground of my heart. And that changed everything. Um, and, and the third thing is that, as I said, I was driven. And on the other side, I woke up and my drive was gone, which was very disorienting. I mean, I thought I'm so grateful that I was still here, mm-hmm. but I was like, oh my God, did I lose my gift? Like, where, where did it go? What happened? And it took me months to reacclimate and discover that I was now drawn to things, not driven. Mm. And that has led to my being uh, prolific and to being uh, because I, I write about what I need to know, and there's a lot I don't know, so that's why I'm prolific. <laughs> um, if I'd only if I'd written about what I know, I would have written very little. Um, but the way that I've come to understand that is um, the metaphor of, you know, you take a river, 
a fast moving river like the Mississippi and and places where it's narrowish, uh, it makes a lot of noise because that current is running against the banks and it's kind of focused. And then it, and that's what it was like to be driven. I kind of knew my gift was present because I heard the noise on the surface. But then it didn't disappear like that river that when it gets to the sea, it doesn't disappear. It goes deeper and joins the rest of the water and it doesn't make as much noise. And so my drive had gone deeper and joined a wholeness I was just being initiated into. And so once I, I could feel that, I kind of relocated my gift. And there's so much in what you say that, that I want to respond to. It's very beautiful. First, I was thinking that um, in some schools of Tibetan Buddhism, the word that uh, we would translate as meditation, they describe as getting used to it or getting familiar with it. And <laughs> that, of course, brings up the question, like, what's it? And what I say um, in trying to describe it is that you know, this is a belief that as human beings having a human life, we have these moments of profound insight and connection and love and clarity, but we don't necessarily tend to live there. We may not be awfully used to it. And that many things can bring us to those moments, including tremendous suffering, where everything else just seems to fall away. Um, and we have these moments. And yet, uh you seem to have done something really uh, kind of extra profound, which is you more lived in it rather than had an experience and and had it just kind of disappear and then and then that kind of frantic seeking to get it back. Well, you know, it's so interesting that when I look back at being a uh, like I said a young driven poet, you know, then I felt like. And, and in very in a very earnest way, like if I could really work hard, maybe, maybe over a lifetime, I might write one or two great poems. And, and then cancer came along and forget great poems. I needed to discover true poems to help me live. And now I want to be the poem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh also, I was so struck when you when you talked about being driven because the um, question I get asked a lot in one form or another from artists, from uh, business people, whoever it is, from an artist, um, it, it would be something like, I'm really reluctant to undertake these practices because I think my creativity is depending on like tremendous inner turmoil yeah. and and chaos and pain. And I don't want to become, as they project, you know, self-satisfied or or kind of pleased with my life because then I won't be able to create. And, and for business people, it's more like I don't want to lose my edge. You know, I don't want to um, just be okay or even grateful because that will mean I am not really seeking excellence anymore. And, and I counter that all the time with saying, I don't believe that's what happens, you know? 
something else happens that's really wonderful. Yeah, and I and I I feel my experience has been that, and and echoing very much what what you are speaking to that 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 every every person will have the opportunity to be dropped into the depth of life where our deeper journey begins and and it can be triggered by anything you know, you know yes by by great suffering and by great gentleness and great love and beauty and surprise and you know i was always amazed when reading about rilke the great poet rilke that apparently for him his transforming experience was not really tied to any external circumstance he was from his letters he was in journals he was just you know writing in an attic in paris when all of a sudden the floor of his understanding of life just was pulled out from under him and he was never the same so it, it can really really be anything and i i think that um it is so much for me about about relating to the whole of life, you know, to being, uh, that by being authentic, when I am authentic, when I can be fully inhabit my life, I tend to experience moments of oneness. And then everything is about what kind of part am I and what kind of living whole. Mm -hmm. So here we are, you know, one year into a worldwide pandemic and and there's so many people whose lives are far more difficult now than previously. So that's quite a context for releasing a book. And the Book of Soul, 52 Paths to Living What Matters, came out last year. Um, how's it been bringing it into the world? I had a book come out last year, too, which was uh, such an unusual experience. Like, I would say, like, I'm going to D.C. this afternoon. Of course, I never left the same chair that I'm sitting in now, you know, <laughs> uh, because... Uh, everything was virtual. It was quite different. Well, uh, yes, of course. I and I felt that. And as you know, like you know, I, books are, uh, you know, it's more like being a like whale, like or dolphin. It's like all this, this you know, exploring in the deep, and you really never know when you're going to break surface. And so the book comes out when it will. It's not quite of our timing, um, and. Um, and for for me, it, I have found I don't know how have, how you have found it. I, I mean, certainly the whole uh, y you know I've been on the road a lot, um, and I love I absolutely love and grow so much from being in real space and real time with people. And so you know, all of a sudden, like everyone else, all of my everything was canceled or rescheduled, and. Um, and I had to learn how to be online, which is a lot. Uh, it's, I would never, it never replaces being in person, but it's, boy, it's, it's much more meaningful than I imagined. Uh, mm -hmm. And there is a lot of presence and connection. Um, but I have, I have found that, that people, because they have been forced to stop, are more open to the kinds of things and I wouldn't say my work, I would say the work. They're more open to the work, and there are lots of ways ways in. And and I'd, I'd love here to kind of back up a minute and talk a little bit about the pandemic itself. And, and you know, and this was an, an unexpected tie to my own cancer journey because, you know, when I was first diagnosed 
30 odd years ago. I walked into an, a doctor's office one day and I did have this huge thing growing out of my head. And, um, and I was told, you know, I had cancer and, uh, and the, one of the many things that happened was when I left that appointment, the door that I had come through to keep that appointment was gone. There was no way back to my life before that appointment. And I feel like the pandemic has done this to the entire world. The old world is gone. There's no going back. There's no doorway back. And I think, and it's made me reflect about, you know, uh, know, if you recall uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief and, and, um, and, you know, if anyone's listening, just, you, you know, they're bar- they're these different phases, not necessarily in order that people with great loss and grief encounter and go through. And they're everything from denial to anger to bartering to depression and acceptance. And, and I think there's whole parts of our society that are stuck in these different phases of grief. The huge parts of our society that are stuck in denial. It's a hoax. It's there's no there's no pandemic. My God, what? what? <laughs> no, all these. What's happening? Of course, it's real. Or even all the out of proportion anger about wearing a mask. I mean, mm-hmm. what are we angry at? Biology, gravity. So I, I feel like you know um, we've been forced. The whole world has been forced into a global Sabbath, and forced to i remember years ago you know wayne muller's wonderful book on sabbath and when he defines in there the 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 wonderful one definition that sabbath is the one day we don't turn one thing into another and here we are we've been forced into this this open-ended sabbath where we have been forced to stop dreaming scheming planning running from here to there, manipulating, undoing, doing, and and forced to say, what, who and what are we now? How are we being asked to change? What, and as I found with my cancer experience, you know, what is opened in us is always more important than what opens us. Hmm. Well, it's so interesting what you say, because it also reminded me of um, this time years ago when um, somebody in this particular community that I was somewhat connected to uh, suffered uh, a great affliction and people around them started behaving kind of badly, you know, toward one another. And and, uh, this friend said to me as I was, just sort of remarking like that. That's so strange, you know? And, and she said, very few people know how to grieve, mm. which is something that really stayed with me. And I thought, you know, and since then I've seen, you know, the very odd behavior that can happen in a family when somebody dies. And it's actually not a skill we have necessarily been taught in this society. And it's very, very painful. And hence we, um, we get stuck in all kinds of strange refutations of the truth that the sorrow that this loss that things are not the same and they're not going to be the same um 
so I really, uh, you know, I really honor what you said. I think it's, it's very, very true. And um, one of the odd things, of course, about writing a book also is that you write it quite a bit of time before it gets published. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, so you can only hope that you've uh, said something that would be helpful or meaningful to people in the time they're actually reading it. Yes, yes, right. It's very humbling. And, you know, I, th- I, I also have learned just personally about grief. I think this is a paradox that somehow our tears, our tears water the break. And, and because the heart is broken open, the tears are able to reach in and water what would not be available to the surface in life. Mm-hmm. And and therefore, what was hidden grows because grief has cracked it open. Um, and I also find this about grief that, um, I, you know, I don't think we ever get over it. If anything, we get under it. And I think that, um, you know, it's like with cancer, like, I, I, I will never get over having had cancer. It's been decades. But when we when we are broken open or when we grieve, um, it kind of blows up our landscape. And the reward, if you will, is that we then have to make new maps because the old maps no longer are accurate. We're forced back out into the world when we don't want to because we're heartbroken and we have to find and make new maps because there's a new landscape i mean i really agree with you about we're not going to go back and i think that's not a commonly held view you know (laughs) in 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 the in the culture uh, at large or in the society i think uh, there's such an impatience for getting back to just what we left behind. And I, I think uh, we have all been so affected one way or another that it's not going to look exactly the same. Yeah, it's not, it, not at all. Not, not at all. So I've been doing a series here on the, on the uh, podcast about mental health in relationship to the pandemic and a big theme that's emerged from these conversations about dealing with such challenging times uh, is around living with purpose or a sense of meaning. And you talk about meaning in the book, and I wonder if you could say something about the role of a sense of meaning and how it affects our well-being to live or without that sense. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that question. So uh... I'd love to talk about it in in terms of how to enter meaning and and then a little bit in how to recover meaning. And for, for me, you know, and when we talk about purpose and meaning, uh, purpose for me is not, um, you know, like I said, when I was driven, it where there was some kind of, you know, end game or goal or imagined or dreamt. Uh, arrival point and and you know uh almost dying kind of blew all that up and 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 purpose is more like the way everything in nature grows out of the ground so that with no necessarily 
and I think meaning is that experience of of being an embodied life. Uh, and and you know this whole process, I, I I'm I'm always struck by how the, this where you know you take any seed and the 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 entire tree or flower or fruit is already imprinted in that seed. It doesn't even know what light is. It's underground, and yet it grows toward this thing it knows nothing about, breaks ground, eventually. How a flower shows its beauty is by turning inside out. That's how far it opens. And it does all of that without ever going anywhere. And I think that that is kind of like the, uh, a, a great metaphor for, for how I experience purpose and meaning. And another way would be how, which reminds me of the Taoist sense of things, that how a fish, when it catches the current, it swims with more than its own strength once it's in the current. And, uh, and, and for a human being, a spirit and a body in time on earth, I think that these, the currents that are always available to us are presence and relationship. So how do we find the current? Well, for me, you know, the two, the two recurring ways that are reliable are by being and giving being and giving and in some ways be, being is giving to myself and so it, it, it's not by accident that kindness and kinship have the same root and that you know when i give to you it not only strengthens our relationship and deepens it but one of the rewards i have found for kindness is that it renews my intimacy with all of life and and the other humbling thing that i have found around meaning and that goes with kindness is you know we're, we're all we're all taught to be great problem solvers and a problem solving is a great skill it's not a world view it's a skill it's a tool in the toolbox of the mind but i find or i have found in however we name these things personally, that the mind only goes so far. And whenever I'm stuck and I can't figure anything out further, um, I find if I give, it cleanses my mind. It cleanses my eyes, my heart. And then I see, think, and feel differently. And all of a sudden, there are more, more true choices are available after the cleanse of giving and and so 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 that um so let me close that part about about um about where you know how to enter meaning with a little poem of mine that about giving that goes like this it's just one stanza the mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. So it's always very humbling, you know. Whenever uh, I, I want, I, in, a, in a wonderful way, want to try to help someone because I think they can't see or they are limited in some way, 
often I trip on the way, realizing that I'm the blind one, and then they help me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so this moves into how to recover meaning, and and you know one of the things. I talk about words often, not because I'm a word geek, but because I have found that that as far back as we can get to the original definitions of words, they're more whole and that they like like stones in nature, they erode over time and they become partial. So I'm often uh, I'm often enlivened and refreshed when I can come across more original meanings. And so this is the word sacrifice. And there's a lot of sacrifice going on right now. And I think of all the health workers and the people who are just sacrificing so much to keep us all well and to keep all of us going. And I was amazed to discover that that the original definition of sacrifice is a little different. So if all those gestures are like like the plants or the flowers that break ground, well, then this definition is more of the soil of sacrifice. And and the definition is this, that the original definition of sacrifice was to give up what no longer works to stay close to what is sacred. To give up what no longer works to stay close to what is sacred. And that has been such a profound teacher for me because one, it or in it, all in its assumptions is the fact that nothing, while everything is sacred, all of the forms of sacredness, nothing will stay the same. And what worked today probably won't work tomorrow, like we've been saying. And so therefore we have to figure out how to put down what doesn't work and how to pick up what will. And so that leads to what I would want to offer to anyone who's listening, three kind of perennial questions that I think are uh, personal, but are they're also societal right now. And, and that's this, when things don't no longer work, when the old world is gone, what needs to be repaired? What needs to be reimagined? And what needs to be left dismantled now that it has been broken? Yeah, let me pause there. That's really fantastic. I mean, I'm going to sit with those three, I think, for a very long time. And uh, I'm so glad you used the word recovered or recovering because uh, I'm not nearly as exact in my use of language as I, was, I would like to be, or I uh, think I can be. Um, I am sort of a word geek, and I think that the theme that emerges from some of my own writing is is that I'm realized that I've, I'm engaged in this effort to try to redeem certain words, like love or faith, you know, from common meanings. But the other thing I see about language very often is that when people phrase a question to me, it often implies something that I think is just not true. Like when people say, how can I maintain mindfulness all the time? <laughs> or how can I keep the level of concentration I got in this retreat? And so, you know, we're setting up like pass fail. Um, <laughs> we're setting up a sense of permanence in the so-called failure. 
Uh, and my response is always, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, you're not going to stay resilient. You're not going to keep mindful all the time. That Life is not like that. We'll fall down and we'll either have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up. And we go on. That's the point is that um, we punish ourselves in some way when we imagine I shouldn't get overwhelmed. Like the entire world is different, but I should be just fine, you know, all the time. And uh, there's something about realizing I'm going to lose it. I'm going to get exhausted. I'm going to get overwhelmed. And that resilience can mean kind of picking up and and starting over rather than feeling like, oh, I blew it. Oh, I agree completely. I, and I think it's one of the, the, the beautiful, beautiful things about being human and is that, um, you know, everything we need is right here in flawed abundance. And, you know, I will discover it and forget it a hundred times. Um, and, and I've come, you know, it's interesting and I can talk about that this a little bit in terms of writing because it shows up that, that way, you know, as a young writer, um, I remember, you know, I would see an image or so I see a vision of something or a, a metaphor and I would try to write it. And I would then I'd look at what I wrote and I'd go, well, that's not even close. I can see it. Why can't I say it? And mm-hmm. and then I'd try again and then I'd try again. I would, you know, five, five, six, seven times and I would be so frustrated. Well, very much in, in, in keeping with what you're sharing, Sharon, you know, I discovered that, um, well, the only thing worth writing about are the things that are unsayable. And, mm-hmm. and, and we're never going to say it. And, and now at this phase of life, well, this, even though I'm more skilled, well, the same thing happens, except now after five or six attempts, I'm not frustrated. I'm grateful to the inexpressible thing because, look, it gave me these five or six poems. Thank you. Thank you. That's so wonderful. How do you counsel people who feel overwhelmed by the sense of failure? Well, you know, I... I very much like you. I try. I try to, of course, witness and honor um, the truth of where they are, because I really. But and then I try to um, share stories about how the truth of our experience and the and the re- the resiliency of of honest and deep expression is liberating unto itself. And I try to share stories about that as well. You know, a great story about that is Beethoven. You know, Beethoven, and we all know he was this, you know, unprecedented genius of music. But what I so honor about Beethoven is he was, he was an ordinary person carrying an extraordinary gift. Mm-hmm. And that's what made him heroic to me. And, and as many of us know that, you know, so here, the, the picture this young man who is discovering his gift that he is lit hearing in his 
being, music that has never been heard on earth. And at the same time, he's discovering that he's going deaf. And, the, you know, he will never hear it played. And by the time he's, he, he went completely deaf by the age of 28. And by the time, uh, in 1802, he was very struggling, very depressed, very overwhelmed by this. He saw no way out of this horrible contradiction. And he lived in Vienna. And there was a small town uh, outside of Vienna called Heligenstadt. And he, um, he was going to go there for his own kind of retreat, some solitude. But the truth is, he was going there because he was contemplating suicide. And when he got there, he was so brutally honest with himself about his own despair. And he began to write a suicide note, which was a letter to his brother. But the power of the truth of his heart's expression, that by the time he got to the end of this letter, everything was leading up to this. And then all, but at the end of the letter, instead of saying he's going to end his life, he somehow says, well, I'm going to make the most music I can with what I have for as long as I can. Mm. And he folds the letter, goes back to Vienna, puts it in his top desk drawer where it is not discovered till after his death in his 50s. And the next decade is arguably a decade of masterpieces. And, you know, it's just that not to, not to deny, as you've been saying, the struggle, the despair, the pain, the difficulty of being human, not to turn from, uh, you know, not, not the cheer up, not, let's put a good frame on it. Let's know. Mm -hmm. But how, how do we allow all of it to enter and inform us? You know, one of the things from my, uh, my cancer journey that I discovered was so powerful for me was, you know, it was a moment where, I, my first chemo treatment, which was in New York City, was horribly botched, and I got terribly sick. It was weeks after I had that rib removed from my back, and I was in a Holiday Inn getting sick every 20 minutes. And um, and I, my former wife and a dear, dear friend were with me. And at every moment, we thought, well, I can't get sick again, and eventually went to the emergency room. But being exhausted, afraid there, then, you know, I, I'm sitting on the floor of this room with my elbows on my knees and through no wisdom of mine just because i was so broken open the sun starts to it starts to be first traces of dawn and for the first time it enters me that this is real for me i'm afraid i'm in pain i don't know what's going to happen next and all of a sudden at the same time i'm feeling somewhere nearby a baby's being born and somewhere nearby a couple's making love for the first time and somewhere else at a table over breakfast, a, a parent and an adult child who haven't spoken in years are for the first time hearing each other. And I learned for that in that moment that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. And that while when I'm in pain, I need the company 
of those who know what it is to be in pain, to be broken. I need everything whole to heal. One of the things I asked myself over and over again, because um, the publication of my book was delayed, which gave me the chance to write a new preface. Um, since every word I had written was written before the pandemic, other than <laughs> the preface. Um, and the question I kept asking myself is what's still true, you know, in disruption and chaos and, uh, another form of that is what's intact. You know, what is whole? What can I rely on? And um, that just came into my mind when when you said that, you know, because um, I think maybe it comes down to my belief that we really need to be a whole lot kinder to ourselves and that these expectations of uh, seeming perfection, you know, rather than embracing the entirety of our experience, the pain and the joy and the, you know, the um, love that people are uh, there for us in a way, or we can be there for others, um, you know, that, that that is so important. And that also came into my mind because I remember in the beginning of people being isolated for those who have been isolated, which of course is not everybody. But in the beginning, there was a lot of stuff going around about how, well, you know, during the plague, Shakespeare wrote King Lear. And yeah. I thought, oh, okay, you know, like who knows what, <laughs> what yeah. will happen. And, and you know, and uh, just very recently, I, re I read an interview with Lin-Manuel Lin -Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, and he said, don't feel bad if you didn't write King Lear. I didn't. And I thought, okay, if you didn't, it's no problem that I didn't, <laughs> really. But at the core of that is um, it's in that field, I think, of kindness to our, ourselves, toward ourselves and, and acceptance that we find that ability to embrace the entirety of things. Yes, I, I, that makes so much sense to me. And, you know, and, and I feel as we talk about this aspect that it is mysteriously, I think, the wholeness of life that is restorative. And 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 in some ways, you know, I, I think that whatever organizing principle or being or sense of things has brought life together, I, I tend to feel that life has been made just difficult enough that we need each other to ensure the journey of love. And, you know, if you take water, you know, I have a glass of water right here. I'm sure you do, you know, and we all learn at an early age, it's made out of hydrogen and oxygen, H2O. But I can't say to you, oh, I'd like a glass of the hydrogen, please. Because even if you could separate it, it would no longer be water and no longer be life-giving or quenching. And while human beings have always said, I just want the good things, thank you very much. You know, no, no, that's okay. You can keep the, the difficult ones. It's the totality, the mysterious whole of life that is restorative. And somehow, if we can, we're challenged to drink from that while holding each other up to endure the rest. You know, this is such a time uh, with COVID of 
limited resources for many, whether that's in our ability to connect with others in quarantine or socialize or not being able to access the things that in the past have filled our lives with joy. And I think for so many people, um, that has meant life has gotten reduced to survival, surviving this time. And uh, what you're talking about really is moving from that sense of simply surviving to much more than that. And even in circumstances where we can't necessarily access everything that once lifted us up, um, we can think about even having the aim of flourishing more than just surviving. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like every, of course, every person that's ever lived and will live needs to both survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. And in moments of grace, they become the same thing. And like everything else, they don't stay there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I do feel uh, that, and, and you know, I, I think back all the way to prehistoric times when, uh, when you know, daily living and survival was so difficult, right? And I remember running across the fact that the very first flutes were carved out of mammoth bone like 70,000 years ago. And, and you know, that was somebody, I, the first one to carve a flute out of bone. I would love to have talked to that person because it seems to me like that somehow being able to conjure music was as important inwardly to survival as gathering and hunting and making a fire. Otherwise, they wouldn't have spent all that effort to do it. And I think that we, one of the miseducations, one of the horrible things in the modern world that ha- is the, the misnomer that, that the arts and anything interior is an entertainment. It's mm-hmm. something that we can do without. When the truth is, we need it now more than ever. We need any of it now more than ever. And I do think that that um, that struggle and difficulty are are always present. That that in some ways, you know, what erosion is to nature, suffering is for human beings. And just as cliffs are worn to their inner beauty after being pounded by the sea and the wind, we, if we can hold each other up, will reveal our inner beauty over time. And, you know, all of the things we're talking about, you know, like if you, if, if you were to describe, the, like if, say, we were directors and we were describing this as a part to an actor um, or an actress, they would think this was the part of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it is. It, it is. And um, and I think that, you know, uh, do, do you know at all uh, the work of Helen Luke? Have you heard of her or familiar with her at all? No, tell me. Oh, well, Helen Luke, she, the last two years of her life, she lived to be 90. She was a Jungian analyst, and she was, uh, I, I chanced, she became a mentor for me those last two years of her life. And she has a, she's an amazing person. She has a book called Dark Wood to White Rose, and it's about the transformative journey uh, that's revealed in Dante's Divine Comedy. And 
you know, when I first encountered that one of her works, which when I was knew her, um, I didn't read it at the time because I, the way it sounded, I thought it was like literary criticism and it's anything, but it is this most amazing, uh, our, uh, you know, archetypal journey that we all go through. And, and the heart of what she says and why I share it with you now is, um, she looks at this journey that Dante goes through from hell through purgatory to a paradise and she, her take as a, as a Jungian analyst and as her, just her person is that's not climbing a mountain. Uh, that's not going from the dark to the light that, that, you know, that's a horizontal journey of consciousness. So hell is the cost of false living and purgatory is the struggle to be real. And paradise is the struggle to stay real. And you notice we never get rid of struggle. We've got to love the struggle and love the process. Wow, thank you for this whole conversation. And I would love it if you would um, end our time together by leaving our listeners in a guided practice or reflection of some kind. Oh, sure. And I've just loved this time too, Sharon. Um, well, let, I wanted to offer a small poem of mine as a, as a meditation and read it twice and then just leave folks with a question to pursue in your own time, in your own way. The poem is called Mind as Keyhole. Beneath the cloud, everything is gray. Above the cloud, everything is light. Calling the cloud unfair is being a victim. Trying to conquer the cloud is being a hero. Calling the cloud a cloud is the beginning of peace. Mind as keyhole. Beneath the cloud, everything is gray. Above the cloud, everything is light. Calling the cloud unfair is being a victim. Trying to conquer the cloud is being a hero. Calling the cloud a cloud is the beginning of peace. And so I would like to offer this question for those who are listening to pursue in your own way. Uh, first as a journal question and then as a conversation you might have with someone. The question is, can you describe one way of being in your life that is no longer working and how you might begin to put it down in order to stay close to what is sacred? And after a week after entering that, I would invite you to discuss this with a friend or, or trusted loved one. Thank you, Sharon.
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I don't know when either one of us or both of us are going to start traveling again, but I hope that uh, in many ways we we come together again. You know, it's been too long. So yeah, um, thank, thank you. you. I, I love that too. And to learn more about Mark's work, you can visit www.marknepo.com. That's M-A-R-K-N-E-P-O.com. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.